All right, so um, we're going to continue our time in Matthew. That's what we're going to do, talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And so I'm not going to lie. I try to think of a a story to kind of start everything off with. I I like doing that because it kind of sets the tone of what we're going to talk about and sets the tone of kind of how I want you to be thinking. And I couldn't really... I couldn't really think of like some whimsical story. I couldn't find one in the midst of all the chaos this week. Kind of just studying the scripture was kind of the extent to which I was able to really pour into to, to knowing the Bible. And then when you get to know that part of the Bible, then you start putting all the other little flair on it, like a little story or a little illustration. And I'm going to be very honest with you, I didn't quite have time to do that this week in the midst of uh, sick kids. And uh, I, I mentioned the, the sickness thing a little bit ago. And so instead of my daughter literally was sick for two hours on Sunday, was completely fine the rest of the week, but she tested positive, and so she was required to stay home that whole week. And so as a result, my house turned into absolute pandemonium right away. It was just three completely healthy children, all stuck in the same house, and we couldn't go anywhere, and so we ended up just going to a hotel, uh, and they just swam and, and watched TV for three It was like one of three people in the whole hotel, and that is what consumed our whole week. And so this, uh, I couldn't think of a a cute little story, but rather I think what I wanted to do was invite you into the reality that you have felt judged before. Uh, You have felt the burden that it feels, uh, that that, that we feel when we look at someone and they look back at us and simply look at us and say, you're not good enough. And sometimes, I'm going to be honest, Sometimes that's necessary. If you're not good at football, and you go out for the football team, and someone looks at you and says, hey, you're not good at football, there are certain times where we have to look and go, you know, I don't think I'm good at football, and then move on with our lives. You know, the movie Rudy is such a fun, exciting movie where this little old guy, Rudy, uh, it's weird because Rudy also accompanied Frodo. It's, it's, never mind. Um, but it, this this little guy Rudy, uh, you know, he's a short man. He's a, he's a, he's a small man, and he walks on at is it Notre Dame? And he's not expected to do anything, and he struggles and he fights, and everybody's like, "You're not good enough," and he's like, "I know, but I'm gonna keep trying." And uh, and finally he gets on, right? He gets on, and, and it's like this big celebratory thing. And uh, that's beautiful, but you shouldn't do that. I shouldn't do that. There's certain moments where we hear someone say, hey, you're not good at this, whatever the case is, and it's just like, okay. But then there's also moments where you know that you've been judged in a more substantive way, where it's not someone saying you're not good at football. Someone saying you're not worthy of something. And most of the time, that idea of judgment that feels very weighty is not the one that says, hey, you kind of suck at football, but it's more so the one that says, hey, I don't really think you're good enough or worthy enough for my approval, my affection, my affirmation. That tends to be the one that weighs us down substantially more. It hurts substantially more. It frames not just our lives, uh, not just that moment, but it frames our entire lives. It starts to give us narratives that we believe, that we walk around with. Um, I say all that to say that as we continue on in in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to kind of transition today, uh, and we're going to finish up this big block 
of text. But, but what I want you to think about today, if we're going to kind of put one idea to it, uh, it's that your, your voice is meant to bless others. Your voice is meant to bless others. We talked about the fact that over the course of the Sermon on the Mount, we needed to read this in two ways, two ways. Uh, the first way is that we needed to read the Sermon on the Mount as a vision of who we are made to be, a vision of, of who God has called us to be. And so when we see the Beatitudes at the beginning of the book, and, and we see them describing people that are thirsting and hunger and hungry for righteousness, we want to know, we want to envision our lives and say, hey, I want to be someone that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And, but then when we get to the, other, to the next section, we start hearing Jesus saying, don't be like the hypocrites who actually go and try to do everything for show and use the external place of their life to try and say that they have righteousness or they're displaying righteousness, but we want to be people that have internal righteousness. And so there's that big section where he handles things like prayer and fasting um, and giving to the poor. And right before that, he actually spends a lot of time uh, on, on how uh, people have interpreted the Ten Commandments. If you do this, then this will happen. But in reality, he's saying the Ten Commandments are meant to point to our heart and what our heart is doing and who we are as people. And so we want to see this as a vision of who we're to be. We want to be the, the type of people that the Sermon on the Mount is describing. But we also want to read it as good news, the fact that there is one who embodies all these things. And it's not always us, but it is always him. And so Jesus has perfectly communicated to us the vision of who humanity is, who humanity was designed to be, what humanity was designed to be. But more than that, it's a declaration of good news that Jesus himself is the perfect embodiment of those things. And so he's perfectly embodied that. And, and, and what we're going to do is we're actually coming to the close of the section that talks about righteousness. And so if you kind of wanted to put this in context, uh, Matt, I'm kind of skipping around. It's going to be a chart. Uh, we're kind of right coming to the close of, of these three big movements in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. The first one is the Beatitudes, right? So there's three kind of big phases that are going on here. And that's uh, Matthew 5, uh, 1 through 12. And that's the blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. We, we've gone through that. And then there's this big second section from 5.13 to 7.12 that really is teaching about righteousness. And this is where, God, uh, where Jesus, <laughs> a.k.a., um, where he actually starts using words like hypocrite. And he starts drawing out this big contrast between the hypocrites who are who? Anybody remember? The Pharisees. Great, great. The religious leaders, yes. And so that, that's really important because if we don't understand that Jesus' frame of reference through the whole Sermon on the Mount is the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, then we'll think that he's just talking about people that act a certain way. No, he's talking about those that actually use uh, God's ways and God's people for selfish gain. And so we actually have uh, this section where last week, we, we're, we're coming to the close here, and last week we talked about the fact that, that the, the, he says, you, I want you to have righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees, righteousness that surpasses the hypocrites. And the way we talked about last week is I, I don't want you to be a hypocrite that uses God in order to get what you want, uh, but I want you to serve God. I don't want you to use others to get what you want, but I want you to serve and bless others. And this week, the thing is, we're kind of focusing, uh, we're taking the focus and changing it from uh, others' opinions. And we talk about the fact that, hey, if you're doing something for the sake of others' praise and applaud, then, then Jesus says, you've gotten your reward. You've gone out, you, you've, you've given to the poor, and it says that they sound a trumpet before they give, which I always find to be super awkward. But they, they sound the trumpet, and everybody goes, look how generous they are. They pray on the corner with their hands open and very loudly so everyone can see them. And, and everybody goes, look how spiritual they are. Uh, and then they fast and they make their face all gloomy. 
Uh, and, and, and they say, man, look at how deeply they're fasting. They're so sad. Uh, and he says, man, that, that external, that, that third opinion, that person out there that's saying and affirming you, right, you're using them. Because you're looking at them and saying, I want to take and, and insert whoever I can into this spot where I can derive affirmation, I can derive affection, I can derive uh, praise from them, and then I can just throw them away and insert the next person. And we do that with God as well. And, and so we were talking about the fact that we were focused on other people's opinions. And this week, really the narrative is changing as, as Jesus closed up this section. And he's, he's focusing not on other people's voices, but on our voices. And, and he starts out by actually using this really tricky language in, in chapter 7, verse 1, where he starts out with a really challenging verse that has been misinterpreted. I think there's like a little bit of feedback on this. And so if you could bring it down a little bit. Um, The little bit, not the little bit of feedback, the, the, the language that he uses is actually quite challenging is, is this language. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. He presents the idea of judging others. Now, let me be very honest. This is really tricky. This is really, really tricky. He says in verse 1, do not judge so that you won't be judged. Verse 2 for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. All right, that's, that's pretty hard. He's saying, hey, I, don't judge others. And the thing is, this is really challenging for a lot of Christians because this has been misused a ton in two different directions, right? It's been misused uh, in, in conservative ways, the, the quote-unquote conservative people, right, that theologically, we're talking theologically or not politically. I don't be getting into the politics, and when I do, I just make everybody mad. But um, on the theological side, right, uh, this has been kind of ignored, if I'm being honest, by the con theologically conservative people, because it just says, hey, we don't want everybody to feel like they can just do whatever they want and we can't judge them. And so we're just kind of kind of set this to the side and not explore deeply what this means. But then on the other side, it's been misused pretty bad as well to say, don't judge. No one can judge. You just can't judge anybody. You can't judge anything. And I got to admit, that's really challenging. And it's really confusing, considering the majority of this sermon has been about discerning what is right and wrong. Considering the fact that Jesus has been bringing down some pretty heavy judgment on the uh, Pharisees for like two chapters now, and just bringing the hammer just really going at him. And then he turned around and said, you can't judge anybody, though. It makes Jesus himself look like the hypocrite. And so what's actually happening here? And I think it starts to actually unfold when we start to understand exactly what he means and, and what we understand. I mean, we understand what he means when we actually start seeing how he continues on in verse 3. In verse 3, he continues, why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say, verse 4, to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. And then, verse 5, there's this word again, hypocrite. Hypocrite. First, take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Uh, don't give what is holy to dogs. We're going to cover that in a second. We're going to need a second for that one. Um, and so what's happening here? 
is Jesus saying, hey, we don't judge anybody. We, we, we don't actually, we're not discerning about anything. We just let everybody live their truth. You do you. Only God can judge me. Uh, hashtag Tupac. Uh, and, and then we, we move on with our lives. No. Uh, there's a lot going on here. And it all links back to the general theme of the sermon, which is, I need your righteousness to be greater than that of who? The Pharisees. All right, now we're tracking. So we're going to do it again. Y'all are all going to say it. It's going to be good. Uh, so it's going to go back to the theme of the sermon, which is, I need your righteousness to be greater than that of the Pharisees. Right. And so we have to put it in that context. And what's happening here is that Jesus is giving us a really powerful example. He's saying, some of you have taken your own notions of who someone should be, and, and in order to make yourself feel good, to make yourself feel greater, to make yourself feel holy, you've set up standards that are not mine, that in no way have anything to do with me, or they have shades of truth regarding who I am or what I want, and you've, you've leveled them against people, and as a result, you've used that as a standard to either deem them worthy or not worthy. Lovable or not lovable? Righteous or not righteous? Worthy or not worthy? And this is exactly what the Pharisees have done this entire time. The Pharisees have taken laws, or, or at this point, there's, there's a mountain of, of really like Pharisaic uh, requirements. And they're not necessarily always directly related to the law of Moses, which is in the Old Testament, right? But, but they've been added on to, they've, they've be, there's been customs added to things. And if you don't do these specific customs, then it's not, you're not worthy. You're at least not in the same category as the Pharisee. And this idea is, is rooted in, in pride, where, again, if we're using people's voice and people's affirmation to say, I'm trying to build my own worth based on what you say about me, this one is saying, I'm trying to manipulate my own mind through telling myself that no one is as good as me or telling myself that everyone else is just a little bit inferior to me in order to gain that same thing that maybe someone else's voice could give me. So it's just the inverse of what's happening already. And so while last week Jesus is clearly saying, hey, you try to build yourself up through the words of others, in this specific space, you try to build yourself up through the tearing down of others. The other one, you use the praise of others to build yourself up. In this one, instead of building yourself up, you just tear others down. You just create restrictions. Or the restrictions that you make are building you up, not just because they're tearing them down, but, beca or because, but rather because they're conforming to you and your vision of what's right. Now you don't ever have to look in the mirror and say, do I have this right? You never have to look in the mirror and say, am I wrong or am I right? You never have to look in the mirror and say, are my motivations correct? Is my heart right? Is my heart correct? But rather, you can manipulate the situation where if anybody decides to disagree with you, you can simply say, no, you're not right. You're not worthy. And hear me, I, I love you. I love you. But some of us have done this. Let me take that back. All of us have done this. Because all of us have taken some little preference of ours some little idea that we think is so important, and we've said, you know what, this person doesn't do X, Y, and Z, and that makes me so frustrated. And rather than it being a mere matter of preference, somehow within the deception of our heart, it manages to weave its way through and navigate and build out this narrative where that person somehow feels inferior to us because they do something a little different than us. 
They're a little bit more annoying. And somehow we get to the place where all of a sudden we don't like someone because they're detestable? No. We don't like someone because they're sinful? No. We don't like someone because they made us mad? Not really. We don't like someone because they just do something a little different than us. They see things a little different than us. I think we, I'm gonna, again, I'm going to go ahead and go political now. Now I'm talking about politics. I swear, if you took this specific idea and you applied it to the political world right now, I think Jesus would weep at the condition of how Christians particularly utilize politics to create these huge walls between this person and me. That they are something so different, that they're outside of God's ways, that they're not even God's people because they see things differently than me. It's, a, it's tragic. Simple ideas, political ideas, and I understand they have importance. I don't want to belittle these things, but when these ideas that are different, right, I, I, I voted for a Democrat rather than I voted for a Republican, when, or I voted for a Republican instead of voting for a Democrat, because I know some of y'all in here are like, no, it's the Republicans that are actually not God's people. I know some of y'all feel like that. And, and right, when we do that, we're doing this exact thing that Jesus is saying, talking about here, where he's going, man, you, you take this little thing that isn't even my thing, and you make it the gauge of whether someone is mine, whether they're faithful to me, whether they're worthy of me. And, and he's looking at us and going, don't do that. Hypocrites, you're like the Pharisees. That's who you're like. We all do this. And the thing is, friend, I want you to know, because you do this, because you do this, you have left, and I'm, I'm, again, I'm not telling you that this is irreversible. I'm not trying to tear you down. I'm giving you the truth here. Because we do this, and because we've done this, we have, in our life, at some point in time, left the trail of someone who has, their vision of how God views them has been dramatically changed by your preference. And that's the damaging thing here. When someone's vision of themselves, when someone's ideas about whether God loves them, how God feels about them, the intimacy they can have with God, the approval they have from God, is dramatically changed because you have placed your preference in a place where your preference, your, what you enjoy, what you like, is the gauge of whether they are worthy, whether they are God's, whether they are lovable, whether they are good, X, Y, and Z. I guarantee you, the moment you've done that, the moment I've done that, the moment we've done that, we have left in our wake someone down there. They have had the, the vision of God and how God sees them dramatically changed by, by our attitude. I thought that was a seal. I ain't gonna lie. That, that, that was, I think that was uh, Andrew Shue, but I was, uh, that must sounded like a sea lion in the corner. Um, right, that, that's the reality that we live with. And that's what Jesus is warning us against. And I wanna pause there and I wanna put a pin in that because I think that's important. And I wanna wrestle, I want you to wrestle with that. I want you to realize that, that we've done that. I've done that. I've, I've literally done that with people that don't play music the right way. I was up here playing music today, and in my life, I have made plenty of people feel little because they didn't play the way I wanted them to play. I've led a lot of bands. Um, I do think about one young, golly, God forgive me for this. Um, his name was, is, his name is Kevin. 
And Kevin was a wonderful guitar player. Kevin was a little excitable. And so Kevin used to be playing solos and stuff, doing little licks in the middle of a song. And I had a mic. Uh, in a lot of churches I played it, I had a mic to talk to the band. And there were times where I would legitimately just belittle Kevin on the mic to just get him to stop. And I'll be honest, it turned, it turned my stomach, it, it turned my disposition toward Kevin. Because Kevin didn't play the right way. He didn't do what I asked him to do because he didn't, he didn't play the way I thought he should play. He didn't fill the when, when I told, thought he should fill. He didn't play the right chord when I thought he should play the right chord. And I was the leader of the band, and so it was my preference, not my demand, not, my, not the law, but my preference that was actually, that was actually the, the law in that band because that was the case. I, there were several times I made Kevin feel really small. That's just an example of how that happens. It doesn't have to be this big thing where it's like, oh, you're a Republican, so God doesn't. You're, it could be something as small as, bro, you just don't do things the right way. And that little annoyance comes up. And that little feeling of annoyance projects onto them, I'm annoying. I do things wrong. I don't do things right. And God is looking at us and going, man, you hypocrite the beam out of your eye before you were about to speck in theirs. That's not even a big deal. Your, the lack of them meeting your expectations, the lack of them fulfilling your preferences is nothing compared to the damage done in your own soul at the fact that you, you don't even value my ways beyond your preferences. You're just building the value of that person in your own heart off of what you want. That's a beam in your soul. That's a beam in your eye. And meanwhile, you're worried about them not meeting your preferences when you are way off yourself. And so let's pause there, though, because I think the inverse of this is also true. If God is telling us and his people in general, don't treat people this way, right? Don't, don't make your preferences into laws and then, and then gauge people's value based on that. He's also telling us the inverse. He's also telling us that we're free from preferences pretending to be laws. We're free from, it's going to get up here, I promise. Matt's back there working on it. Um, unless I don't got it in there. Matt, I might not have it. I did have it in there. Let's go, Matt. Uh, it also means that we're free from preferences pretending to be laws. Because here's the thing, just like I said, every one of us has left in our trail, in our wake somewhere, uh, a person whose vision of themselves has been changed by us having demands that they can't meet. Likewise, you are also walking around with some sort of, of, of detriment to your soul and to your mind and to your heart because someone has levied something against you and told you you weren't worthy because you didn't live up to their expectations. Maybe it's that you didn't, have, you didn't live up to your potential. Maybe it's that you didn't go to the right school. Maybe it's that you didn't do, have the right profession. Maybe it's that you actually dis did that thing in high school that you weren't supposed to do. Maybe it was that you actually disappointed somebody. Maybe it was that you, uh, I don't know, used your money the wrong way. Maybe you filed for bankruptcy. Maybe you, whatever the case is. And there's that little voice then, someone looking at you going, I'm so disappointed in you. And the thing is, in the midst of that, what's challenging is that little anchor, that little noise, that little whisper that seems to root you down in that moment, never lets you move past it, is the one going, man, I, I'm, I mess up. I'm a mess up. I, I'm, not, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy enough. I'm not this. I haven't done enough. And here's the thing. This is what's concerning. 
is that I guarantee you there are some of us in here, you and me, not just some of I would say all of us. I'm going to venture and say there's all of us. All of us have gone through life with that narrative built up in our lives somewhere, somehow, through someone that made preference into law. They said, here's the law that you have to meet in order for you to be worthy, lovable, affirmed, X, Y, and Z. And it's their preference and not God's ways, but their preference. And we have walked around assuming that God is disappointed in us because that preference wasn't met rather than God actually like knowing God's actual heart for us. And so as a result, there's some of us that walk around and assume that God's frustrated at you because someone else's preferences weren't met, and that person's been frustrated with you for a few years. There's some of us that have literally been, you, you, you are filled with anxiety that something good or something bad, I should say, is around the corner because life is too good right now because your assumption is good things don't happen to you because somebody's preference told you that you don't earn good things, you're lazy. You don't work hard enough. You're not smart enough. You're not sharp enough. You don't pay attention enough. You don't make good decisions. You this, you that. And every time we didn't meet these marks of preference, it somehow told us that we weren't good enough, we weren't sufficient, we weren't smart, and now our whole life can be going great, and we just assume there's something bad around the corner because we think that we generally are a failure somehow. And if there's not something bad around the corner, some of us, and I'm going to be very honest, I also want to be very humble and merciful with you right now because I know this is sometimes really sensitive. Some of us have gone full-fledged like uh, self-sabotage in our lives. You've gone through full-on self-sabotage, just completely throwing away good things because your vision of yourself was completely damaged, not because you have failed, but because someone's preferences were told, were told to you were laws. They, someone told you their preferences was, were a law. They were a standard by which you were either accepted, affirmed, loved, right, wrong, enough, not enough, and we've walked around our whole lives and here's God going, no, you're free from that. You're free from that. We can walk around thinking that, that we aren't enough, that we're not worthy, that we're not good enough, that we're not smart enough, that we're not sharp enough, that we're not hardworking enough, that we're not wise enough, that we don't make the best decisions enough. We may go around thinking all that, thinking that God is looking at us like that, when in reality, God is looking at us with mercy and with kindness. And the voices that would actually tell us that those things are true are the same voice that he's looking at and going, you hypocrite. Take the beam out of your eye before you worry about the little stick in theirs. So the beautiful vision of this is, one, man, we want to be a people that bless others instead of tearing them down. My opinion is not the, is not the defining opinion of someone else. And if you find yourself guilty... If you find yourself guilty of that, then turn to God, ask for mercy, and ask for forgiveness. But likewise, we're given this beautiful vision that no longer do other people's preferences that had pretended to be laws, preferences that pretended to be standards that we have to meet or else we're not enough, that we're free from those things, that we're free from that. You are free from that. That voice no longer is a voice that, that has control over you, but God's merciful kindness is what now has priority in your life. That this that's true. And ultimately, the vision that God has for us is that if you were to put all that together, 
and you were to begin to live in light of God's kindness, and, and as a result, like, like hearing his voice, his voice and his love, and that doesn't mean that he's not going to come in moments and be like, you need to check your heart, right? Basically, this entire sermon is about us checking our hearts. So I'm not saying that God doesn't do that. I'm saying that God doesn't do that in a way that says, and if you don't get this right, I'm going to forget about you, right? That never happens. And so <coughs> we start listening to God's voice, and as a result, we start to bless and love others. The vision of, of, of all this combined, all the past several weeks that we've talked about, uh, gets captured perfectly in verse 12. This is the ultimate vision of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's really simple. It's what you teach kids. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them, for this is the law and the prophets. That's, that's how Jesus sums it up. That if you were going to have a vision for your life that embodied his ways and his heart, that was fueled and shaped by his ways and his heart for you, that if it was going to be lived out in a way where, where we embodied all that and served and loved one another, it would be this, that you would do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? Whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. And that seems really simple. It is, except for it isn't. Except for, again, if that, was the, if, if that road was super easy, then all of us in here would be like, bro, I'm, the, I'm a great person. I kill, the, I kill the loving others game. I be in here serving people. Don't nobody got beef with me. Why? Because I be loving people really well. I have the best reputation you've ever heard. No one has a bad thing to say. And I promise you, that ain't you. And I want to go ahead and tell you up front, that ain't me. My neighbor was at my doorstep this week giving me grief. It was about my dog pooping in his yard. <laughs> but the way I responded to him was also not good. I was like, look, man, I'm sorry, but you ain't that, like, this is your first time telling me about this, bro. You need to calm down. And then he got a little more upset. Then I was like, all right, man, my bad. I'll go pick up the poop. I'm sure he walked away that day being like, this jerk. I, it happens. It happens to you, it happens to me. This ain't us. So how do we get there? And here's the thing. The road to this place in verse 12, you would think it has a lot to do with just self-reigning in, right? That you just say, hey, I'm going to keep working on myself. I'm going to keep figuring myself out. I'm going to keep doing internal work. And yet Jesus doesn't envision that. Now, let me say this. That doesn't mean those things aren't like travel partners with us. It doesn't mean that those things don't go with us. It doesn't mean that those things, when I say travel partners, it means that you may have to legitimately go back and navigate your life to figure out where the lies that have told you you're not enough, you're this, you're that, where those come from, figure out how to get them gone, go see a counselor. All that may be a travel partner with you. You may go through life needing to figure those things out. You may not be able to escape those. Those things may be travel partners with you. But the point A to point Z is not marked by that self-work. In Jesus' eyes, rather, it's, it's what we talked about last week. It's intimacy with him. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, he, he turns the corner. And by the way, real quick, let me just address the, the pig in the room. Uh, verse 6, don't give what is holy to dogs. That's, you know, toss your pearls before swine. Uh, all that is saying is just don't spend too much time with those that argue with you. 
right? If, if someone doesn't want to know who the Lord is, then there's a time when you don't keep badgering them. You just serve them. You just, and this is actually echoed in places like 1 Peter, where wives who had probably spent a lot of time trying to convert their unbelieving husbands are eventually told by Peter, you know what, just be humble. Just be humble and, and probably stop because you don't want to just keep on being aggressive. And so that's all that's getting at. It's just practical wisdom to say, hey, don't keep, just don't keep going at people. That's, not, that's never fruitful, just so you know. The idea of saying, I'm going to keep arguing with you until you change your mind, never been a good thing, never been a good choice. So that's all verse 6 means. Now, Jesus, again, the solution to, to, to our hearts, what is it? Is it just self-work? No, it's, it's intimacy. He, he says in verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish? Will you give them a snake? If then you, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And here's the thing. When we read this in context, can you put that back up, Matt, actually? When we read this in context, this is, this is powerful. Because this isn't some type of system to get what we want from God. That's how it's been read a lot. You read this like this, say this like this, ask and God will give it to you. What this is is saying, hey, if you don't want to be the type of person that hurts other people and you don't want to live with the hurt that's been caused by other people, this is, this is an illusion not to how to get something from God, but to come to God. <laughs> come oh, man, no, no, okay, okay, it's Arsenal for sure. Uh, all right, all right, it's Arsenal for sure. 100% chance that's Arsenal. Um, I'm glad, not quite sure how in there. I don't, I don't even think about it. Okay. If you, want, if, you, if, you, if you want to be that person, all right, if you want to be a person that treats others well, and you want to be a person that isn't fighting against, right, or, or is working through overcoming those voices that have hurt you in the past, the answer is intimacy with God. To come to him spend time with him. He uses language like ask and knock, um, seek. For everyone who asks, receives. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone or for a fish, will give him a snake. This isn't meant to tell you this is how you get something from God. It's meant to tell you that there's a God who's waiting to hear from you and that he's willing to receive you and that if you seek him, you will find him. And if you knock, he will answer. And if you, if you come to him and ask him for something, he doesn't respond with evil. This is actually the direct opposite of what oftentimes those lies are telling us in our minds. And he's saying the way you overcome that is not by sitting there and going, I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm not that. I am smart enough. I am this enough. I am this enough. But by going to God, and as we go to God, he responds in a way that displays love and displays kindness and displays mercy and displays patience and displays affection and displays affirmation. And as we keep building this rhythm of going to him and being intimate with him and spending time with him and hearing his voice and experiencing him and, and, and engaging with him, it begins to fracture those stones and those, those, those strongholds that have kept our hearts and our minds and, and everything about us entangled and his spirit, his love, his joy starts to fracture those things and frees us. 
not through what we do for ourselves, but what he's done for us. And so Jesus' response to this is very simple. Do you not want to be this type of person? Do you not, be, do you not want to be the one that hurts others? Do you not be, want to be the one that's constantly walking around in, in the frames and the shackles of, of your past hurt? You need to come to me. Again, it doesn't mean there's not going to be travel partners along the way. It doesn't mean there's not going to be some, some self-evaluation and some counseling and maybe some medication for some of us or whatever the case is. I'm not saying none of that. What I am saying is that Jesus' vision is that he's going to destroy those things by consistently bombarding us with the truth of who he is, his love for us, his grace, his kindness, his mercy, his compassion. The question then becomes, are we going to engage that? Are we going to actually seek? Are we going to knock? Are we going to ask? That's the question here. And actually, the entire next section goes into that, but that's for, that's for next week. But that is my final question to you. Because again, this is a vision of who we are to be, that we want to be people that bless others, and that we want to be people that are free from the, the voices that have tried to, to burden them when people try to make their preferences into laws. That's a vision for who we want to be. But again, this isn't just a vision of who we want to be. It's good news. It's good news that there was one who was completely affirmed. There was one who came out of the water in baptism to hear the voice of God Almighty be like, that's my son. And I'm so pleased in him. And the good news that this declares is that even though you're out here in the world struggling and fighting through whether you've hurt others and how others have hurt you, in the, in, in, in the heavens above, there's this one who has perfectly navigated life, who has built up those who need to be built up, who has challenged those who need to be challenged, who has perfectly affirmed and, and, and loved and, and, and earned anything from God that one could possibly earn, and he has given his life on the cross in exchange for our sinfulness, in exchange for our failures, we receive his success. And so all of a sudden, right, what we're doing here is we're not just saying, hey, there's intimacy to be had. It, it, they're, they're, we turn to God. It's that we turn to God on the basis, not just that he's there to receive us, but that we turn on the basis that he receives us the way he would receive his own son, Jesus. That when you turn to God, when you turn to the Almighty, who made everything, who's perfect in all of his ways, he receives you, and he loves you, and he affirms you, and he, he, he cares for you in the way he would receive the perfection of his own son. That, that's, the, that's the challenge here. If, if we're not tapped into the fact that God is there to receive us, and then we're likewise not tapped into the fact that, that Jesus is there to forgive us, and to redeem us, and to make us new, none of this makes sense. You'll still be knocking on a door that you expect there to be no answer to, and the answer may just, your heart just might be hardened to where you don't even want the answer. You feel not worthy of the answer. You feel not worthy of the response. This is good news. This is good news. This is good news that every single one of your failures, everything that you assume would make the door stay closed, every single thing that you assume would make the, the God stay far, Everything you would assume uh, that would make God stay silent when you ask the question has been actually handled by Jesus. And now the invitation is that we would come near and that we would draw close to God and that God would begin to pound away the aches and the bondage of our heart 
through his kindness and his mercy. And that's the rhythm of what God is saying is righteousness. You want to be righteous? Don't go out there and just make it about your outward actions. Because guess what? That's probably going to make you more unrighteous. It's going to fill you with pride. It's going to make you use others. It's going to end up making you kind of look at others and, and, and use your own opinion to prop up yourself by belittling them. Instead, turn to Jesus, receive grace, and then keep going to God. Keep going to God. Keep going to God. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to go to God. I've been on this prayer thing, and we ain't going to stop now. Uh, we finna pray. And by pray, I mean we finna spend some time with the Lord. And so here's what I want you to do. We're going to end this time today by simply, I want you to talk to God. I don't know how often you pray. I started praying more, and I want to go ahead and tell you, it's been life-changing. Um, and so on your end, I, I want you to pray. If this is the only time in your whole week you pray, I want you to take advantage of it. I want you to talk to God. I want you to talk to him about where you struggle, where you feel unworthy. I, I, I want to invite you to actually like, kind of ask him to speak to you. I don't know how he's going to speak to you. I have no idea how he's going to speak to you. Somebody in here may give you a, a very real word. I want to give them the space to do that. At the same time, God may just show you a picture of something. But I want you to invite him to speak to you in some way. And this isn't on some, like, we're not, no one in here is going to start speaking in tongues and ain't nobody going to be swinging some chandeliers or nothing like that. That ain't going to happen. And if that does happen, I'm going to correct him real quick and be like, bro, we got to read 1 Corinthians together. Um, but I do believe that God is real. And I believe what everything that I just said isn't BS from an old book. I believe he's alive. That he died for you. He died for me. He resurrected. He's forgiven us. And now we're invited to have a real relationship with the living God. And I want you to experience the fullness of what that means. Not just read from a book or hear a person talk about it. And so we're going to take some time to talk to God. Um, basic tips. You can start by thanking him. Thank him for who he is. This is very Lord's Prayer, FYI. Thank him for his provision, for his character. And then if you want, a, a regular practice for me is just opening my hands and saying, Lord, speak to me and being quiet for a little bit. So I'm going to invite us to do that now, and then I'll come back up, say a quick prayer, and finish, us, finish up our time.